The future has come to pass. Gavin, can you hear the sound of my voice? I can. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen next. What's going to happen next is I am going to eat every single one of your curly fries. But what you will remember is that you consumed them voraciously and thanked me very much for buying them for you. Do you understand? Yes. uh, uh, Thank you, Shane. I I will remember it like this. Good. Good. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, hey everybody. Welcome to this episode of I Survived the Rapture. I'm your lapsed evangelical Shane Bazell here with... Uh, I'm Gavin Rustle, your your ecumenical fanboy. Man, I I finished reading book two this week and I'm excited to get into that uh, next episode, but man... What a, what a thing book one was. Yeah, we got we to gotta lay book one to rest well and truly. So, uh, Gav, what you drinking? Well, I am drinking a blue edition Red Bull. I've been on Zoom calls. Uh, this is my second Zoom call of the day. So uh, <laughs> I'm just chugging through. I'm doing the uh, old standby combo of water and black coffee. It's a good, good duality there. You got a little yeah. bit of Carpathia, a little bit of Tribulation Force in there. <laughs> yeah, there are two liquids inside you, one light, one dark. <laughs> Which one do you pee out first? <laughs> so it's a bit of a looser episode. We don't really go into this with uh, a whole outline or notes. This is just going to be us talking about our reactions to book one and sort of summarizing what we got out of it and uh, how we feel about moving forward. So this is going to be a little bit of an interesting one because a lot of the feelings I got, and I think what you got as well, are kind of foundational to what we're going to see throughout the rest of the series. And I'm sure you see that now as you're reading book two, but just go ahead and start out with your basic thoughts. Um, What are you you feeling once you finish that last chapter and closed book one? How did it leave you feeling? Definitely uh, when I finished it, it was, one, it was, it the book exceeded my expectations, like, a lot, especially once, like, you get that payoff of the final chapter, which is a thing I've started noticing, like, as a theme in the books, like, that final chapter is, um, uh, I think how you said before we got on mic, uh, it's almost like sequel bait, but it, like, it sequel baits hard. How I've kind of just described it, have I been thinking about it uh, this week, is it's like, it's almost like the story of your level zero clerics becoming level one clerics. Like they're starting to get their initial like uh, realizations about the world, preparing for the journey ahead. And honestly, like I'm having a lot of fun with it. Like I didn't think I would have this much fun with the books when I started, but like I'm invested. I'm ready. Yeah. This first book actually does manage to strike a pretty good balance of sermonizing and the thriller airport novel stuff. Um, I actually really liked it. I mean, of course, there's all of the caveats, asterisk, 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 all over the things that we did like, um, you know, never forgetting kind of what the core of these novels is all about. But as just page turners, like this one was really fun. I feel like it 
did lag a little bit in the middle part. Mm-hmm. Mostly when we start to focus on Rayford's conversion, there's a lot, there's a little bit of a, a second act slump. Right. At least there was for me. Um, and I'm sure maybe a little bit for you, because you can kind of tell like he's wrestling with his conversion, but it, it's coming. Like it has to be or else you don't have a rest of the, the book series. It's pretty, uh, Rayford's conversion's pretty long form. And uh, like, and even like from a narrative standpoint, I found Buck's conversion to actually be a little bit more satisfying. And that might just be because it's getting mixed up in a lot of like the heavy fantasy elements of that last chapter. Because it, like, it is almost like he's receiving like um, uh, the gift of the goddess, so to speak, in converting. Like, and that gives him the strength to complete the return without dying. Yeah, and if this is kind of a Star Wars uh, style, like hero's journey, which I think you've you've brought that up before, mm-hmm. um, there's definitely some thresholds that get crossed. I mean, the moment of the rapture itself is about the only supernatural thing we see for a while. Mm-hmm. You get the rapture, and then of course they flash back to the the attack on Israel. But most of the book goes by with not a lot of supernatural occurrences until we kind of go full speed ahead in that third act. And then especially they just accelerate till the dials fall off in uh, in that final couple chapters. In a way, we get some... Um, some supernatural stuff in the uh, in the middle, but it is very disguised. Like Carpathia's like rolling like twenties on all of his um, uh, essentially like his uh, his charisma checks almost because he has uh, I assume because he has that antichrist power in him. Yeah, he does have the ability to really charm a room and wrap everybody around his finger. But like you said, it's disguised. It could be plausibly denied that you know this is something supernatural. Maybe he's just really Tom Cruise level charming, right? I really like, like, Carpathia's journey, too, is interesting, because at that, like, last, like, you don't really see much of his evil side that he, like, um, uh, like, show, like, that's not just, um, other characters theorizing until the very end. Like, they keep that facade up pretty hard and don't waver too hard off of it. Yeah, and they try to make it a little bit of a mystery, Mm -hmm. um, like a whodunit as far as who the Antichrist is. They give you a couple of potential red herrings, but then, of course, by that end chapter, there is no question. You know, he has Sith lorded his uh, his other benefactors, and he's left himself standing as the only potential candidate, which basically sets up the majority of the of the series from there. Which, yeah, we uh, we didn't even cover that like when it happened, which was uh, surprised both of us. But yeah, he does like um uh, the whole archetype of like killing like surpassing your master and thus killing your master that he uh they do that which like i thought symbolically that's pretty cool i guess i i think that's oh, yeah. a, it's a neat little thing i'll have to look into it um i know of course we know this is written late 90s and we would have been getting the prequel trilogy in the late 90s and a lot more focus on the sith as a concept i don't think that it was directly inspired but it it's kind of funny Mm-hmm. How that one echoes the other. And there was something else that um, this is going to give me a segue into something that stuck out to me as a theme. Um, and this is something that, you know, I we kind of touch on in the intro a little bit. But the idea of the tribulation and the existence of Christianity during the tribulation being set up as a heroic struggle. Mm-hmm rather than just a need to survive or rather you've you've crossed the finish line once you become a believer the need to set up the antichrist as an antagonist rather than it being a personal journey to me is very i want to say telling 
as far as who this is aimed at. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is going to get into some of my bigger feelings on on the type of audience this is meant for and the type of worldview that they have. But when it comes to being a Christian and what that means to these people and then within the context of the story, it becomes very apparent that it is not enough just to believe and just to have faith and just to have that salvation or conversion experience. We also have to set up a an antagonist for you to fight against, which is very interesting to me. Right. And I just want to touch on that thing when you're uh, when you're talking about what the audience this is meant for. I even had like a, a, a conversation with someone who um, uh, read the first one, but was um, uh, just surrounded by people who were fully engrossed in the series. And they made the observation that uh, Left Behind is not a book that you read to convert. It's a book that you read when you're, when you're already in. It's like It's like a reaffirmation thing. And I also had the idea, or uh, the, the term Sin Rorschach came into my head this week. Because it very much is like that, where it is intentionally prodding at certain like major sinful acts and like making you feel things about them. And then that would be like a pipeline, like, okay, this, this identifies something about your belief system that you later talk to a pastor about, which is kind of how I guess this interfaces with a church experience. Like this is a supplement to um, a a very specific worldview. Yeah. And I think the, I think the primary audience, you know, as far as that kind of person, you're saying someone who's already in, this is written for the Rayford Steels. Yeah. Um, the Rayfords and, and in a way, yeah, it's not written for Buck because Buck would take one look at this and go, all right. Um, especially if he was actually a writer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's written for your Rayfords. It's also written for your Bruces and your Chloe's and people like that. That leaves Buck as kind of the odd one out. Yeah. And well, I mean, we're kind of, we're kind of coming at this from Buck perspective. So I guess like, you know, even uh, your, I, I, I'm not sure how big in the left behind fandom is your skeptics that like the story, but I think it's like a very small portion of this book's audience. Yeah. I imagine, and you know, I'm having to send myself back to a decade, you know, to decades prior, but I think that people who picked this up or who maybe were gifted it for their birthday or for Christmas in the late 90s, who were maybe not regular church attendees, maybe they were um, CEOs, as I've heard pastors call them, Christmas and Easter only um, attendees, uh, people like that, uh, people who might have lapsed, who maybe were part of a more mainstream or what would be considered to be a mainstream sect and not necessarily along the evangelical lines or even along the lines of a sect that truly believed in a pre-tribulation rapture. This, along with a lot of paranoia about Y2K and the coming of the millennium and is it significant, it might have been enough to pique their interest. Mm-hmm. And especially since you're packaging it in this sort of conspiracy thriller, which is, you know, that's what it is. It's a conspiracy thriller with supernatural elements in it. I think that might be enough to start to reel in some converts, but you're right in that it definitely helped to kind of calcify a series of beliefs that were already there. Right. Because like usually uh, most atheists that I've talked to and the woman I talked to about the series this week just so happens to be an atheist. Um, she and she got it to book one and stopped, which I feel like is a lot of people's like that just have like a base curiosity. This is as far as they're getting like just book one. They're like, oh, OK, that was kind of cool at the end. But like, I'm not going through 15 books, you know, like, ah, oh, neat. Well, that's 
that's interesting, I guess. I mean, mm-hmm. I've done that with a series or two, you know, picked it up, read the first book, been unimpressed, and then just not bothered to read the rest. Now, was she an atheist when she picked the book up? Yes, yeah. She, uh, she, she like, she kind of got in, like, a whole out of religion, like, in, like, preteen years. So, like, by the time this book was out, when she was a preteen, she fell out of faith. And, like, even when she was in faith, she, 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 uh, she was shocked when she found out that, uh, like, people actually took it seriously. I guess was like oh, yeah. her reaction. So like she was that kind of believer. Gotcha. That's an understandable reaction, especially for someone who's come out of faith and is now kind of on the outside looking back in. Mm-hmm. Couple of other things that really popped out to me, rolling back and sort of reflecting on what we read this time to kind of lay that foundation going forward. Some of the high points thematically and some of the messaging that they want to get across definitely hitting hard on the world peace bad american sovereignty good united nations bad any sort of international trade bad so those were all sort of things that that definitely came out of lahay's worldview and i know we've talked about this in other episodes but i I read something by him a little earlier this week, and I wish I could cite it, but he specifically said he was a several decades old study of the Illuminati and the satanic plan to use the UN, education, and the media to wipe out all traces of Christianity in the world. What? That was his actual personal belief. That was Tim LaHaye's true and honest belief. Oh my God. (laughs) Yep. And anyone listening who is familiar with especially, you know, 2000s era Alex Jones and InfoWars and a lot of the conspiracies that got touted by him back then will find that familiar. The idea of an an encroaching one world government, um, one world currency, economic control, any kind of international trade deal is um, a pretense, any sort of movement for world peace, nuclear disarmament, any of the things that Nikolai Carpathia preaches um, or is trying to campaign for, while they seem good on the surface, all that is a Trojan horse and it's going to be used by evil banking elites across the world. Put as many parentheses around that phrase as you feel comfortable doing because there's a lot of anti-Semitic undertones in that. In a way, it does. It, it stays consistent in uh, in book two with just how much of that's in there. It was kind of weird. It just feel like Rosenweig is a certain um, uh, like depiction of uh, like almost like a like a caricature of uh, Jewish people, I guess. Yeah, and we're gonna get more Jewish characters mm-hmm. that are that are sort of set up that way when we get into book two. But this idea that Jewish people, um, and this is a a very kind of insidious kind of anti-Semitism, but that the Jewish people, while, and especially in other decades, have historically been looked at by, you know, Christian regimes as, you know, pawns of the Antichrist or, you know, as inherently, quote, evil, as, as horrible as that is. In this one, it's a little bit of an iron fist and a velvet glove kind of anti-Semitism. It's a lot more insidious. It's more that, oh, look at these hapless Jewish folks so easily taken in by the Antichrist. Oh, they are victims and we must save them through conversion. Right. And that's definitely like even a major like with uh, that's one of the more insidious stuff with like Eli and Mo- Moisha is like even even though they're some of my favorite characters in the book, what they're being used for is a little bit playing into that. Oh, yeah, as is that the Jews are ignorant, they missed their chance, they denied the true Messiah, and the only way that they can come in and be kind of 
part of the team is if they choose to reject their culture, reject their faith, and turn to the only true faith, which is, in this case, evangelical Christianity. And the same thing goes for Catholics because the pope gets raptured, and they specifically mention it's only because he accepted the teachings of Martin Luther. So Protestantism before the rapture occurred. So it's kind of this weird, um, I've heard it referred to as throwing Catholics a bone. Hey guys, uh, we let your Pope get raptured, but uh, by the way, you're still a false religion. Especially once we get into, because uh, the the Catholic stuff really high, like amps up in tribulation force. And uh, I'm excited to get into that on the mic because the nitty gritty of that is like, there's a lot of stuff there to unpack. Uh, Just seeing that go um, from kind of a background thing to more front and center is, uh, was a interesting shift that I saw between the first two. I almost see as they're really trying to lay the groundwork um, of this fictional world they've created, they're doing a weird version of world building. And again, I keep using that word insidious because it kind of is. They are still world building just like any other fantasy novel would do, but they are building a world that is phase shifted just one degree or two degrees to the left or to the right of our own. Yeah, it's like uh, to use this uh, this this word that I, I'm not sure is too widespread. It's like they, they're going like one or two cules away, like degrees of abstraction, where it's like you're looking through the world and like just like a like a slightly um, uh, off window, so to speak. Yeah, and and where that ends up being kind of diabolical is that what they're doing is they're drawing in folks who wouldn't look at this with much of a critical eye. They're just reading it as entertainment. And what it's doing is kind of reinforcing an idea that maybe not even a devout Christian, but someone who leans to the right politically or considers themselves to already be a Christian, or maybe harbors some of these suspicions about things like the UN or the sovereignty of other nations or global trade or anything like that. And it all comes packaged together. And it's really important to look at what the book and what the authors are framing as attributes that are evil and of the Antichrist and what is framed at, uh, or what the authors frame as good and attributes belonging to the tribulation force. And I think that's a really important pair of lenses uh, to keep glued to your metaphorical eyeballs for the rest of the series. Now, of course, it's going to get more and more overt, and it's going to get more and more serious and dire as the tribulation continues forward. But never forget, as you are reading this, or as you're listening to us discuss it, keep a close eye on what is framed as being on the side of God and what is framed as being on the side of the Antichrist. That is what the authors want you to take away. Right. Me and you have kind of started contextualizing this. Uh, to to if if you go if you're in this for the long haul and you decide to go in uh, just because of like the the nature of what this is playing at this is starts getting into some weird existential horror territory because um, both me and you have remarked that the, that sometimes this this book series can make you feel a b- little bit weird especially if you're raised. Um, uh, in a certain kind of environment. It's it's very much like a Room 101 situation because you're in for like 500 pages like per book and times that by 15. There's like a lot that you're being shoved in your face. And like I would referred to before, it kind of prods at very specific things that can almost start um, uh, a little bit of insecurity 
in you. So like definitely um, uh, come in with that as well, because it throws a lot at you, especially if you're listening into it on audiobook. I feel like hearing it too is a little bit uh, intense at times. Yeah, it's different. Um, and I mean, I confess to you, I think after last episode that, you know, my upbringing in, um, in Pentecostal Assemblies of God, you know, evangelical, that world, I felt a really strong tinge of nostalgia. Um, as we were talking, and I think I said this in the previous episode, but but we kind of talked about it a little off mic afterward, that there was a real sense, like I kind of felt myself getting drawn in to the scenes, you know, that were at the church service and kind of imagining and really visualizing these people giving their testimony and, you know, having these kinds of talks and things like that. That was very, very, very strong for me in a way that it may or may not be to everybody who's reading it, but that absolutely resonated with me. And I felt a little weird while I was, you know, reading it and then didn't realize kind of that my eyes were starting to glaze over. And then I was going back into some of those old lines of thinking, which I haven't really dusted off in the better part of a decade. And definitely I, uh, I felt the same kind of way. Like a lot of these scenes that since they're written from like, you know, your uh, Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins kind of framework that because they've been to church a lot. They know what it looks like. So it's almost like the, the like reading those. It's just it takes you right back to like the, the to church services sometimes. And like, you know, like so like uh, just everyone kind of standing up and being passionate, like especially those first few um, uh, New Hope scenes. I could it, it, it did kind of put me back into, the, you know, the whole Baptist service kind of uh, like memories starting floating to the surface. Yeah, absolutely. Very intense. Um, and it really, really was something that that resonated with me strongly for better or worse. And kind of coming out of that and looking at it and being like, okay, I see how, like you said, if you're already in, this is going to help reinforce you. And I think it's, you know, to take it a step further, if you are already in and you accept, you know, the church services, you accept that the rapture is a thing, you accept salvation and all of these other tenets, but maybe you're not all the way in on the Illuminati stuff, the conspiracy stuff, the xenophobia stuff, the anti-Semitism stuff, um, some of the casual sexism mm-hmm. You know, all of those negative things that we were pointing out and kind of laughing at, um, you know, ridiculing rightly so, I think that it is um, very, very dangerous right? Uh, for some folks who may not have considered that stuff before. Mm-hmm. And it comes packaged with these feelings that are reinforcing things they already believe, but then it comes with these add-ons. Right. And, you know, normal folks who who may have never even considered that, may have never even thought of that, all of a sudden start folding that into their worldview like you've talked about previously and going, yeah, I guess that makes sense. You know, maybe, you know, the, you know, the UN in my books I like so much, they're kind of insidious and, you know, kind of evil or the UN in my books I like so much aren't really worth uh, trusting. So I don't think, I don't know if that's a good thing. Right. Uh, and to to just further reinforce what you're saying, like even within like the Protestant community, there is huge um, uh, debate on like um, uh, whether or not this is even biblically sound or even like um, uh, that they're glorifying like the wrong stuff, you know? So even like, it's not just... Um, uh, it's not just uh, this kind of like like separated uh, view that um uh, that's giving these criticisms. Like even within the Christian community, there is debate about these books. 
Oh yeah, totally. I mean, and and there's debate about the idea of the rapture, whether that is an actual occurrence that will happen. There is doubt about the idea of the tribulation. Um, and even for folks that believe in the rapture, whether there is a pre-tribulation rapture or a post-tribulation rapture. And I remember even getting pushback when I was growing up. To the credit of these Sunday school teachers, I got pushback from some of my Sunday school teachers, you know, when I was in the sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, starting to read these books and um, having them say, well, it is definitely fiction and it is one interpretation of how things might go, but it is, and I wish I could remember the name of this particular teacher, but if she's still with us, then I, I would love to thank her, that this was just one or two men's interpretation. You know, this is something that men wrote. The God did not inspire this. And, you know, when you grow up evangelical, there's a lot of talk about how the Bible itself is the inspired word of God, that that's directly from God through men. These are books meant to be read as fiction. Mm -hmm. So even back then, I had a little bit of pushback, which at the time I was like, yeah, nah, it's way cooler if it happens this way. So I'm just going to go with this. <laughs> but, but um, you know, even within my very right-wing evangelical, you know, charismatic sect of Christianity, there were people going, eh, well, you know, it's it's written by men. It's not necessarily, it's not divinely inspired, so be careful. But at the same time, there were also curriculums that I would go through that would talk about Revelation and would hit these prophecy beats almost beat for beat. We were selling Tim LaHaye's books, including these, in the church bookstore. My pastor at the time gave a series of sermons about the book of Revelation and about prophecy. I remember because instead of going to my middle school youth group, type study, I came into the, what they called big church in the big sanctuary and listened to those with my parents and took notes and was super into it. Even though I was getting some dissenting opinions, a lot of it was still sort of flowing through that left behind media machine. You know what I mean? Right. And uh, even over the last week, I, I think I sent it to you earlier in the week, I found a, a pastor's PowerPoint that is, does directly on the left behind series, which you need to delve into just to see like, like a firsthand experience of how like um, a, a pastor like interfaces these books into their sermon. But just finding that was crazy. And then also like the, the one thing that I found that was a satirical article, but I know has to, I, I am willing to put money that there is at least one left behind VBS vacation Bible school. For those who don't know the acronym, I guarantee there was one, just one left behind <laughs> VBS somewhere. We can only hope. Um, and yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to link that article in the notes mm -hmm. because that was, I couldn't tell if it was satire. That was really like, I, I think you sent it to me and I was like, please let this be satire. And I think it took a little bit of digging on both our parts to figure out that, yeah, it was, it was the kind of thing that going to those, for those of you that, that didn't grow up in, in church, uh, vacation Bible school, usually a week long church activity kind of church camp that you got to go home from uh, at the end of the day. Um, and you would do activities and there would be, you know, sports and there would be Bible readings and like worship services and study stuff and crafts and all kinds of things. And they would do this every year during summer vacation. And uh, there's a whole cottage industry of making these curriculums for vacation Bible school. And they're usually themed and they come with their own materials and they cost money to license, especially if they belong to, you know, a, a pre-existing Christian property, which there definitely are those out there. I remember going to like a big, because I, I uh, when I was gotten to my teenage years, 
I, uh, I, I went to a few of them and then I helped run them for a little bit um, as a teenager or early teens. And um, then when I was a little kid, there was this one called Arctic Edge that was like really like high class. Like this is one of the ones that you probably had to buy a license to do Arctic Edge's program. Um, and it was, it was extensive from what I remember, like this was just on my formative years. So I've kind of, uh, lost a, a good amount of memory on it, but I remember like, Oh God, what was the tagline? Arctic edge where adventure meets courage. Oh, wow. And that we had to chant that a lot. Yeah, man. We, I ran across like, and, and to kind of go to the licensed properties too, there was a, um, adventures in odyssey one. Do you remember those? Did you ever listen to those? Growing I up? did not. Oh man. I just outed myself. If there's any kids who grew up listening to uh, Adventures in Odyssey, you are required now to give the show a five-star review. Um, Because I just name-checked Adventures in Odyssey. It was a focus on the family radio drama series. It's probably why I do nothing but listen to audiobooks now. We'll have to talk about that in more, like more extensively some other time, because that is a whole segment of uh, evangelical childhood to, to break open. Um, there was also a Chronicles of Narnia one. Uh, there was a Pilgrim's Progress one, which if we ever want to, once we get finished with Left Behind and want to go like crazy deep into some real like um, Christian fiction, um, we can go into some John Bunyan Pilgrim's Progress and parse that like old, old, old English, <laughs> like early modern English language, um, which is gonna be a headache in and of itself it's like i i'd say it's probably worse than reading the silmarillion oh my god oh yeah but sort of back to the um to what we're dealing with here looking at the impact that left behind had and clearly this grabbed a bunch of people i did not have the forethought to look up how many individual copies this particular book sold if i remember to i'll put it in the the description but uh yeah, we can put it in the notes if uh, if I don't just stumble upon it. Also, uh, the whole like the weird gospel like um, uh, thing that LaHaye and Jenkins also did, where they not only did they did they write uh, the an account of Revelation, but they they went ahead and just uh, got some account of uh, th- their their perspective on the Gospels too, written in a la this style. Yeah, that's and that's actually a good segue into just to kind of encapsulate everything we've been talking about, that as much of a fun time as we had during this book, it goes hard with taking Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins' specific view of not only Christianity, but what Christianity's place in the world should be Mm -hmm. and how Christianity should be interpreted, taking that and really just creating a strong foundation of what that is and what it should be. And I think that is in a way the most dangerous part of these books. And I, I don't ever want to get so out to see that we don't realize that, that there are portions of these books that are dangerous. And I'm going to use that word. I, I'd agree with that. There's definitely, there's like, uh, uh, it is very easy to kind of like get wrapped up in these as um, uh, through like the fantasy novel lens that you forget that th- th- these books don't ex- uh, exist in a vacuum um, either. Like th- these, these books have very real impact um, uh, that can lead people down some pretty dark corridors. Yeah, definitely. Um, and like we've said, reinforce some things that are reinforce things they already believe and slide in stuff that they may not have ever considered before. 
but that kind of can bring them further into a very specific way of looking at the world that is not not always positive, not always loving, not always what I think that the Jesus of the Bible would have wanted. Mm -hmm. Um, And I can say that with confidence as well. (laughs) I'd agree with that as well. Because definitely this, first, there's this whole, like, they, they, they kind of do a mini Judas where they made, like, they start, they made this media empire out of, um, uh, out of a misrepresentation. Or, no, not a Judas moment. They, uh, well, yeah, Judas and also, like, a money, like, you know, the whole money lender and Judas. The money changers, yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's capitalist Jesus doesn't really square so close with, um, with uh, turning the tables over in the temple, Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a very different Jesus. And I think that, <laughs> I can't remember what I read this on the other day, but when someone tells me they're a Christian, is it Jesus classic or the Republican variety? <laughs> New enhanced Jesus. Yeah. Now with nationalism. Yeah. Je- <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, extreme Jesus with extreme nationalism, which I mean is so funny. And I, I know we're gonna slam these points home and you know really kind of bury them as we keep going because this will only increase. You know, the same way that the tribulation is gonna get worse, everything we are talking about as a negative here is only gonna get worse. But I do want to say some positive things. I think that you know, as we have talked about a little previously in this very episode, there are folks who got good things out of this. I think that the book is still enjoyable in all of its camp and bad writing, terrible names, dumb dialogue. (laughs) It's a fun, it's a fun read. It doesn't, it's never not fun. Um, It can drag a little bit, but it's never not fun. Yeah, like you described as your airport reader. And you know what? Like over this last week, I had a pretty, like it was a pretty like rough, like slogging week. And reading book two, like it was almost like a comfort food. It wasn't like the, because I I was kind of been going back and forth between here with a thousand faces and left behind this week, just like alternating um, so I can balance what I read. You know, because like, and it really help cut like the the really like academic you know like uh, dense material with just like all right let's uh let's see bruce or uh, let's see uh buck fight the illuminati for a little bit oh yeah dude it, it's it's absolute craft macaroni and cheese blue box fiction mm-hmm. like it doesn't take a lot you don't have to think about it it really is that kind of turn your brain off fiction but that's why i kind of like that we are trying to read this with our brains turned on which you know makes for equal parts criticism and a lot of times hilarity right and we and and in the process because like you have the same like think too much and brain might fall out that a few moments of this is like that where brain just falls out and we're just like okay um there's all these love plots going on here and we like we have to look at certain things with a big magnifying glass that like weren't meant to and that that's where a, a little bit of the fun comes into play too the the chocolate and cookie moment will forever remain with me as absolutely gross <laughs> they mention it in book two as a flashback oh my god you're kidding i no, no, wow, i don't remember that few, several pages that reference the cookie because that like that's their call to adventure the cookie <laughs> is that relationship's call to adventure oh man that's the that's oh that's awful <laughs> 
So I hope we're like deep into book seven. Buck is just like, remember that cookie doll? Like, still, still talking like a 1940s gangster. Listen, doll, I know we're about to like storm this fortress, but you know, I loved you ever since the cookie. Calling back to their lady in the tramp moment. Oh boy. So, yep, we've we've had supernatural events, global conspiracies, um lots of kind of scary stuff in the metatext and uh some lots of kids. money thrown around. Lots of money Thousands thrown around. Of and, dollars just dropped at Yeah, so much in this first book. So, and now this brings us to book 2, Tribulation Force, and I'm going to take this opportunity to read from Amazon.com, the plot summary of Tribulation Force, the continuing drama of those left behind. It has been nearly two years since the day of the mass disappearances. In one cataclysmic instant, millions all over the globe simply vanished, leaving everything but flesh and bone behind. Global war has erupted, and the Tribulation Force sets a suicidal course that places them in direct opposition to the rise of the Antichrist. All right. <laughs> right, it really like, gives it like an epic prelude right there. <laughs> All right, well, hey, um, thanks for jumping on, Gavin, and thanks for coming in and uh, doing this. We weren't originally planning on doing epilogue episodes, but I think this is going to become a tradition for us. We're going to finish out the books in three episodes and then do kind of a post-mortem afterwards. So you guys, we go off the record for a bit. Yeah. Off the record. You guys will have that to look forward to. So thanks for joining us on this. Our first off the record, uh, bonus episode of I survived the rapture. I have been Shane Bazell and I'm Gavin Russell and, uh, make sure to always, uh, wipe your face when you're on a date. All right. Bye guys. Bye guys. Okay, that's our show. Please remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And uh, join the community on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at Rapture Podcasts. Uh, you can email us at raptorepod at gmail.com, and we really want to hear from you. Thanks for listening. And lead you astray.